What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and earning their financial freedom in the process. And on this show, we dissect the latest trends, ideas, and strategies these indie hackers are using to get ahead so the rest of us can do the same. If you've been listening to the show and enjoying it, do me a favor and leave a quick rating for us on Apple Podcasts. Today, I sat down to talk to Dan Pearson of Unsettled. Dan is an expert in what he calls the future of work, which is really a new opportunity for indie hackers all over to build better tools and applications and software for companies who are changing the way they work. Uh, It's pretty obvious with the global pandemic this year that a lot of companies have been forced to work remotely. They've been forced to work in these hybrid environments. And so in this episode, we get into not only Dan's story, but also uh, just a frank discussion about the coolest ideas and opportunities that we see for indie hackers in this space. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Cortland. Uh, Excited to be here. Yeah, I reached out to you in response to a tweet you made back in October. You said $58,000 in sales so far this week for a product that didn't exist one month ago. B2B is wild, not sure why I ever bothered with you lowly consumers. And you never actually shared what it was that you were building that made so much money so fast. So tell us what you're working on. Yeah, totally. So I mean, that 60K was two big deals, right? It was $30,000 in sales to a very large technology company in Seattle. And it was helping them call it like kind of elevated team building, like bringing in industry leaders and people who have different interesting things to say. It was connection sessions, helping the members of this organization break down silos and have like intimate connection um, and then different workshops that we ran to help them like find that personal and professional growth. It's very, very much tailored to this organization, like extremely custom. The second part of that 60K was was another 30K deal, and that was a pilot to help a Fortune 50 pharmaceutical company figure out how they could roll out this like massive, amazing future of work initiative. And I think like seeing how progressive and forward thinking they were about how they were moving to this new future of work showed us that like there was a market to help other companies do the same and like really be first movers in this this market of, of helping companies transition to a hybrid environment. Those were the first two deals. Like they very much were taking into account the problems that we heard, but like the solution that we're now working on as a product is an evolution, I would say, of of those very like service oriented, we're completely customizing this for your needs. Person. That's like, I mean, that's a great way to start a business, in my opinion. Yeah, I love that point. I've said it on the show a million times. Like, you don't have to start with something complex and ambitious. Like, you don't have to start with a SaaS application, even if that's where you want to get. It's probably easier to start with a service, you know, something simple, make a bunch of money, in your case, $60,000 in a week, and then use those learnings and use that money to sort of fuel you to get to the next step. I also want to talk about this term you keep mentioning, the future of work. You and I spoke last week and I kept calling it remote work. And you're like, no, no, it's bigger than that. It's the future of work. And I think it's important to talk about this because people are always complaining that they don't have startup ideas. They don't know what to work on. But every now and then there's like a big societal change. And people start living a different way. They start working a different way. And it's just a good excuse and a good time period to really come up with a brand new idea and serve some new market that didn't exist before. So right now, uh, that might be the future of work. We'll see. And then finally, I want to talk about transparency. Because a lot of people are skeptical about being transparent. They're skeptical about sharing their revenue numbers, about sharing their strategies, Uh, They're afraid competitors are going to steal their ideas. And your tweet, I think, capitalized on transparency. You talked about how much money you're making, and people ate it up. You got like 1,600 likes. You got hundreds of retweets and responses. Why do you think people were so supportive despite the fact that you were only kind of half transparent? You didn't really share what you're working on. Yeah, so marketing 101, I'll leave a little bit to mystery. 
It really, it's the genesis of years of, of being open and transparent um, on Twitter and through Medium. And the first, you know, maybe 2,000 people like that tweet in total, but the first 30 that got it there and that retweeted it and put it in front of Cortland, who now is having me on his podcast and I get a chance to, to share. The first 30 people that were there that were like my kind of small army of, of folks that have you know, followed me over the years, they've all seen like all of the downs that then put me in a place to like have, you know, some of these call them ups on the roller coaster where of entrepreneurship where now I'm starting to find more success after like years of struggle. But those are people who have, you know, seen tweets about mental health and about me leaving Lyft, you know, two months before my cliff and like, I don't know, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that in stock that I left behind and, and how I've thought about that over the years. And they've seen, you know, the two financings that were, you know, term sheets signed basically for the second one, very much so. Like we work in Santa Monica whiteboarding with, you know, the two guys who were in the investment firm. And then two weeks later, seeing coronavirus start to ramp up and getting an email that told me that, you know, that $500,000 was, had basically vanished. So there are people who have been along for the ride. And I think that's so important because if people only see, you know, the success and and you're transparent about your success and you're kind of just bragging and you're, you're kind of just an asshole, uh, so you have to really, I think there's, there's two sides of the coin and people embrace the vulnerability and people embrace the transparency when um, you're sharing things that, that, you know, it's, it's not just the good times. Yeah. I was going back to your old tweets and you've got one from July of 2019 last year that I liked and retweeted. And you start off by saying, I've been walking through the entrepreneurial desert since August, 2014, when I got my last paycheck from Lyft five years, uh, broke struggle. Damn dude. I mean, I've been so broke, I can't pay attention. It's been so long of just trying these different businesses that, you know, have their moments of of kind of uh, that most of the people listening to this podcast can probably relate to where, you know, it seems like you're finally about to hit that, that precipice of like, of success. And then suddenly it's further out in the distance. And like, the entrepreneurial process is never overnight. Like you always hear that. It's one of those kind of truisms that you, you know, you see people say like, there's no such thing as an overnight success. Like that is so damn true. Yeah, I think that's very true. There are very few overnight successes, but I also want to know what you've been doing to be so broke because you don't have to be broke to be an indie hacker. I know a lot of people who are never broke. They're never super stressed about finances. They're never wondering when their next meal is going to come from. What were you working on last year when you tweeted that? And also walk us through this five years you spent in the entrepreneurial desert, as you called it. Yeah, so the last business I was working on, uh, it was called Bolt Travel. So it was this idea of community travel, like millions of people spend billions of dollars a year flying all around the world for these group travel experiences with complete strangers, which I thought was just just kind of crazy. So we are our innovation there alongside awesome trips like rooftop tent camping safaris in Africa and sailing in places like Greece and Norway and the Caribbean and overlanding in Baja and hiking in Patagonia, all those trips, like the innovation we were bringing there was this idea that you could build community around those experiences and like extend those experiences. And I mean, it was going great, man. Like, and I, when I say we very much, I mean, me, I was a hundred percent by myself, indie hacker style. And, you know, I always use the kind of the colloquial we, cause I feel like it, you're talking about a company and it maybe makes people think that, you know, you're a little bit bigger than, than you really are. So, but very much it was, it was me. So that was what I was doing up until, you know, March 10th, 2020, when, when I had to, you know, get people back from Panama and get people back from Patagonia and then face, you know, over the course of a month or two, increasing understanding that my life and that business had changed forever due to the pandemic. Yeah. That's an interesting point about saying I versus we, because 
I think a lot of people in the indie hacker space are benefited by being very personal and down to earth, especially if you are in the education business, if you are spending a lot of time directly engaging with an audience, people like to buy from a human, they like to kind of know who you are and what your story is more than kind of like this nameless, faceless organization. But in your case, that might have been different because you were actually organizing these like big trips for people and groups and maybe they wanted to think that they were you know, in good hands and that you were like a professional team of people who had done this before. What was it like being an indie hacker working by yourself in the travel business? Yeah, totally. And it was very much, I was flying by the seat of my pants. I had very little direct experience in creating that kind of travel product at scale. Like I'd always been the person that like put together those kinds of trips for friends and family. Like I'd worked for Lyft, managing their travel partnerships, but those were like figuring out how we could partner with hotels and airlines to get more people, you know, to, to drive in cars with pink mustaches. It wasn't like facilitating travel experiences all around the world. So, I mean, you know, I started at square one. I threw up like a really terrible Squarespace page for that company for, for Bolt. I emailed probably 20 people, told them what I was doing. And the very first trip that Bolt ran was in Oaxaca. And there were, including myself, five people on it. The, the other four people, one of them was my brother. One of them was an ex-girlfriend from San Francisco. One of them was a buddy from San Francisco. And then we had one random um, who's a, a Bitcoin millionaire and uh, was looking for people to hang out with over New Year's. Good, really good guy, I should say. But that was that first trip. And that was the start of that business. And from there, you know, I, I think about marketing any business, but particularly, I think, for indie hackers. I think if you picture concentric circles, like smaller circles within larger circles, like the first circle are the people that you know the best and who support you and want to see you succeed and like are going to be your biggest advocates. And that's who you start with, right? And then the circle outside of that is then uh, the people who, you know, maybe you've worked with in the past, haven't talked to in a while, but like could be interested. And then, you know, you move further and further out until you reach the group of people who you've never talked to in your life. And like, then your product better solve a problem pretty good for them, you know? But until you get there, like you have these people who want to support you and that's a great place to start. And what about this, this five years wandering through the entrepreneurial desert? I'll start the story and about pretty much 12 years ago, right out of college, I started a very successful internet marketing agency by myself down in Argentina. Uh, I'd moved down there to teach English, couldn't find those opportunities. So I started writing freelance articles and it was very much the heyday of SEO, spam, article writing. I started hiring, I found some success with that and started hiring other Americans who had moved down to, to Argentina in a similar fashion to teach English and couldn't find those opportunities. And like, built a really successful agency out of it that I ran by myself as all like, you know, kind of freelancers, but I, I was running it. And I mean, it was very much like Tim Ferriss for our work week style, like maybe even before he coined that term, it was like 2009, 2010, uh, or right alongside anyway. And I made more money working less back then than I ever have even come close to since I was making, I was netting like 10 K a week which was wild because I was like 23 years old, flying all around the world, you know, in first class, having these amazing adventures. And so, I mean, that was, you know, the start of my career. So like that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. And literally that started with me writing an article for like $6 about going on a vacation in Cape Cod for like God knows who. That was the start of that business that turned into this pretty substantial uh, venture until it got smashed by Google updating Panda and the whole SEO industry changing. Yeah, like overnight, just demolished that business. So give me a sense of the economics of a business like that. You're hiring a ton of writers. You are writing a ton of content. Google's yeah. not that smart back then. So you're getting to the top of the rankings. And then what? You're making a ton of money on ads? It wasn't even that sophisticated. I had primarily one client, um, which is like the most like beastly 
broadly internet marketing company that no one's ever heard of called Red Ventures. They're now, I think, maybe even public, but they have all these different verticals where they're selling, reselling ADT home security. And they've got every, like, they're completely vertically integrated. So they have websites where they're capturing traffic. Then they have a call center. Yeah, I'm looking them up right now and they're, they're huge. They own CNET, they own ZDNet, they own TV Guide, they own Metacritic, they own GameSpot. This is a huge media company. Exactly. So like back then they owned all of these, this web of web properties, like hundreds and hundreds of domains where they would capture traffic for ADT home security, satellite TV, a bunch of other kind of consumer products. So they needed a ton of articles to rank for them. So like I found them on Upwork or rather they found me on Upwork. Upwork didn't even exist. It was Elance. This was 2010. They found me on Elance. I did like maybe a $1,300 project for them where I wrote like 20 of these complete bullshit articles uh, myself. And then they were like pretty dramatically quickly escalated to we need like 500 articles a week at like 15 bucks a pop. So I was like, okay, cool. I can hire Americans living down here who have degrees from like Yale, you know, in English, but can't find work teaching, you know, people how to speak and write. So that turned into a big opportunity, but it got smashed overnight. I mean, literally overnight, it got demolished. Yeah. So I can't imagine what it felt like to go from making 10 grand a week as a 23-year-old <laughs> to later in your career, trying to be an entrepreneur take two. You know, you're trying to get bolt yeah. travel off the ground yeah. and it's a slog, right? You're taking your sister and your family members on vacations, you know, trying to get your first clients. <laughs> How did it feel to, to, to taste like, you know, the real hardship of entrepreneurship after having such kind of a, an easy success early on in your life? I think about being a monetary success, like I was making all this money and that was admittedly awesome, but I felt like I was contributing zero value to humanity, perhaps even being like extractive, just putting this like complete arsenal of complete bullshit out into the universe, right? And so coinciding with that business, getting affected by being so, so badly affected by by that Panda update, I'd become really interested in collaborative consumption, the sharing economy. This was like 2011, 2012, right when it was starting to take off. So I sent a cold email to a VC that turned into a three-month internship in San Francisco at a sharing economy company that then turned into a role at that VC that then turned into uh, Lyft in 2014, 2013, 2014, right? Kind of as, as Lyft was taking off. And yeah, it was definitely, I felt much more fulfilled in terms of the projects I was working on having deep, important act impact on humanity. But I still really didn't have the kind of freedom that and the balance between like living to work and working to live that to me is is fundamentally important. I mean, yeah, I just started taking 30-minute long walks during the day, hour-long walks, two-hour long walks, and then I quit my job at Lyft before, about two months before my cliff. So left, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table, um, got on a bicycle and rode across the United States by myself. Um, and that was really, you know, my return to entrepreneurship after that first company that I'd started doing SEO content marketing. So I spent four years in that grind in the Silicon Valley grind and, and uh, then decided I, it wasn't really for me. It's hard to go from a life of freedom as an indie hacker to a life of basically a desk job where you have a boss telling you what to do and you've got to be you know, dressed a certain way and got to have your butt in a certain chair at a certain time every day. It's, freedom is kind of the number one thing for most people who've, who've tasted it before. It's kind of like the baseline, because even though you, you found purpose at these tech startups, you said you were talking, you were working for sharing economy companies, you ended up at Lyft. Uh, the sharing economy is like this very purposeful thing, or it's kind of a marketplace-based apps where you're connecting people to people. So Lyft and Uber, 
Airbnb, I think, is an even better example where it's a little bit more humanizing and people can sort of help each other. And even though you had purpose there, if you don't have freedom, it's almost like the operating system of happiness. Like you can, once you get that base layer down, you can start to build all sorts of apps and programs on top of your freedom. But if you don't have freedom, even if you're making a lot of money at a big company, it could feel like you got to get out. You got to do something else. Exactly. And I mean, for me, I think I take it over money. You know, there have been times over the last five years, as you alluded to, when you read that tweet where I've just been, you know, so broke. But to me, like the fundamental freedom to be talking to you on this podcast from, you know, the the coast of Oaxaca, Mexico is is the most important thing. I mean, one that I, I, I just absolutely need to optimize for. Okay. So you're done with Silicon Valley. You're done not being free. You decide you're going to be an indie hacker again. What do you do? Sure. So it was about a year and a half of travel after Lyft completely disassociating from uh, Silicon Valley. And that led me to 2016. It was like, okay, like, yeah, there's no way that I want to go work at these businesses again, these like large Silicon Valley startups. I recognize that like that wasn't the life for me. So I started a new business that was like probably this on paper, like sexiest business that like 500 people have started and they've all failed because it's a terrible idea. Um, I can get into that one if you're interested, but. Yeah, for sure. Let's hear it. So it was helping people understand how they could best use their frequent flyer points and miles. This is how that business started. It was called Slingshot. I posted a photo of myself in first class on Cathay Pacific Airlines on a flight from Hong Kong to New York City. It's the longest flight in the world, or at least was at the time. Posted a photo and said, you know, do you want help learning how to do this? Like, would this be valuable if I helped you do this? And it got, you know, 250 likes on Facebook and all these people hitting me up. And I was like, I've got something here. I've got something here. And I spent two years trying to make that work and burning through a ton of of savings. And it's a brutal business because the banks and the credit cards and the airlines don't want to share any data because they have no reason to. And that whole system is opaque for a reason. I took learnings away from it for sure. But I mean, it was to call it two, a full two years of working on a business that like I should have after three months realized wasn't going to be any kind of success. Okay, so let's fast forward to where you are today. Uh, your travel businesses don't work out. Bolt doesn't work out. Obviously, it's pretty hard to have a travel business during a pandemic when traveling is basically illegal. But now you're working on a company called Unsettled and you're doing these crazy deals. You made 60 grand in a week. Tell us about how you got here. Yeah. So, I mean, rewind to March 2020, that deal fell through, which was going to give me the security that I had uh, lacked forever. I mean, part of that deal was a 50000 They were buying $50,000 of my equity in the company, and that was just going straight to me to pay off credit card debt that I'd accrued building these businesses. I mean, I've written like Medium posts about that. Maybe I could, you know, link in the podcast or something. But that was going to really give me a lot of security that I'd lacked for so long, you know, and, and like that tweet that I referenced about being broke for five years. So in the process, reframed what I was thinking, realized that like, okay, like travel not coming back anytime soon. Um, two friends of mine had started a company about five years ago called Unsettled. And we just started having frank, you know, honest conversations about like, maybe we'll be able to get through this and get to the other side. You know, the, the likelihood of that will be stronger if like we team up and we go through this together. So you know, that conversation turned into them aqua hiring because, again, it was just me full time. Bolt to be a part of Unsettled's primary product before the pandemic was 30 day retreats around the world. So like Tuscany, Buenos Aires, Bali, Cape Town. Um, they set you up with an awesome place to live. 
co-working space, and then a really intentional, thoughtful set of experiences over the course of 30 days with the premise that like you need to be a little bit unsettled to realize true personal and professional growth because if you're not, then like, you know, you're kind of just coming at it from like a place of stagnation and, and a comfort zone. And that's not really the moment when you're going to, you know, find that kind of growth for yourself. And I mean, Unsettled, obviously, their travel product got smashed equally hard in March. And yeah, we had that frank conversation. They gave me a, a bunch of their company for joining enough to like really feel like I'm an owner of it, which was an interesting tra- transition, I think, from like being an indie hacker to being now part of, of a team. Okay, so both of your businesses got crushed by the pandemic and you decided to join forces, but you're pretty much still at square one. I mean, this is where almost every indie hacker is trying to figure out what they're going to work on to try to make money. And that's where you were because none of your old stuff was going to work in the pandemic. How do you come up with a new idea from scratch? Yeah, so Unsettled uh, had put out virtual experiences, but it was all business to consumer. And when I came on, what I really wanted to work on was business to business opportunities. So figuring out again, totally online, like what value Unsettled's approach could bring to different businesses and different organizations. And I went through 10 different iterations, talking to so many different businesses, big, small, had been remote forever, never been remote a day in their life, you know, different industries, all different kinds of businesses and trying to figure out what their pain points were, how we could solve them. And over the last, call it three or four months, very much service-based. We put out a bunch of different kind of feelers to friends, alumni of people who'd been on Unsettled Trips just to start conversations and really learn what the problems were around this very sudden dramatic shift from the office to remote and hybrid environments. Yeah, I think this is a process that a lot of indie hackers kind of skip, which is determining what you actually want to build, right? You don't want to just like randomly just start building something because you're excited about it. I mean, that can work. Like maybe you'll see even 100 or 200 examples on indie hackers of people doing that, but you don't see like the tens of thousands of people who tried that and built something that nobody wanted. But if you actually start with your customers and you start with their problems and you're asking them, you know, what their challenges are, you're looking at where they're spending money, or maybe even just doing research. Like any indie hacker could go, you know, type in news.google.com and just do some research. Type in future of work or remote work and you'll get a ton of articles and you'll see a ton of people talking about their problems and what they're struggling with. So I like the fact that you guys actually sat down and, and did that work. What did you discover uh, were the kind of the top problems that people had that were worth solving and building a business around? That's probably mistake number one that every entrepreneur, including myself, makes is like trying to solve problems that either don't exist or don't align with, with people's you know actual kind of like use cases and, and what they're doing and what they're trying to figure out. Such an easy mistake to make. I mean, I find myself literally still making it every day, having now started, you know, successful businesses and failed businesses. So yeah, so the, the feedback that we heard from all of these different businesses that we spoke to was they had made that transition overnight from collaborating, communicating in the office to now having to figure out how to do it in a remote environment. And like both as individual contributors and then as organizations, just like chickens running around with their heads cut off. And I think March, April, May, it was so reactionary that companies fell into bad habits and negative routines around remote work. And like that was really the, the challenge side of it. Now I think that we've been working remote for call it seven or eight months now. Like now I think there's an opportunity to transition to the opportunity side of things. And like, okay, like let's solve these problems and see how it can manifest as, as positive implications for businesses. I myself have stopped referring to it as, as remote work because I think it extends so far beyond that. 
Um, all of the companies, almost all of the companies, I should say, that, that we talk to, like they want to get back to the office in some form or in some shape, or maybe it's not even the office, but it's like in real life experiences, you know, in 2021 and beyond as the health situation improves, maybe, you know, a hundred person org is ditching their office. And like, suddenly that budget is freed up to fly everybody to Bali for 10 days for a, you know, awesome team retreat kind of thing. So all that to say, like, most companies, I don't think, are going to say we're completely ditching in real life to go 100% you know, remote, quote unquote remote. I think what's really exciting about the future of work, if, if you keep an open mind to it, is that it's expansive and it's unlimited and it's, it's exponentially open for new ideas to the point where like, we're going to find these hybrid environments and hybrid companies and hybrid everything that like takes the best parts of of being in person and having that that like IRL connection and matches it with the flexibility and, and the opportunity to work at your best, like whenever you want, however you want, wherever you want. So that's the kind of company that I want to work at. I and mean, I'd imagine for at least a lot of people, the, the kind of company that they would want to work at too. It's like, who doesn't want to you know have their cake and eat it too? Exactly. Who doesn't want to <laughs> eat cake? So why don't we talk about some ideas? Let's talk about some of the cool companies we see out there and the future of workspace. And maybe this will help people get their uh, creative juices flowing for companies that they can start themselves. What do you see? Uh, who's inspiring? What are some of the cooler businesses that are catering to this future of work? So, I mean, there are so many different apps out there uh, that are, are trying to tackle like what it means for all of us to be working in this completely new environment. One of my favorites there is, is called Icebreaker. Like I think of it as what would technology look like for for connecting us um, in a really intimate, like fun, engaging environment. If we'd started out with this idea, like rather than, you know, being in a business context, like we're doing this for social connection. So they're flying in literally icebreakers into the conversation and sending people into breakout rooms accordingly and giving people the prompts they need to like be human, right? So it's definitely not what you use for like an important sales call, but like internally to build culture at your team. You know, this is it's it's like a much better tool than than something yeah super utilitarian like like Zoom. There's no personality with Zoom. It's 100% utilitarian. Like I must call you and you will pick up, and then you call somebody and they pick up and you have a conversation. And like that works. I mean that's fine. But I'm on the Icebreaker's website right now, www.icebreaker.video, and they've got all these little cool events. So you can do a happy hour or you can do some sort of virtual meet and greet. And if you click into the events, they tell you like, okay, here's the template, you know, here are the little cards, here's what the prompt's going to be, here's how we're going to match people together. And it looks like they're, they're free for basically teams of up to 40 people at once. But once you get past that, you've got to pay $100 per group, which is actually not that much. So I can see people adopting this and really getting used to it and creating company traditions and making it part of their culture. Uh, and then eventually, uh, you're kind of hooked on it and you're paying 100 bucks a month to, to make your team better, really, which seems like a good deal. I've seen some of this stuff like early on during COVID. Like somebody had like a... I think a goat cam where they would put a goat on camera <laughs> from their farm to just sort of join your Zoom calls just to kind of spice up your meetings and make it interesting. But like this one seems a lot more, I don't know, purposeful. Yeah, I think it's a great example of, of human centric design. And that's something that I think a ton about that, you know, this, the small team that I'm working with that we think a ton about. There's a couple of other ones that I've seen that are pretty cool that are part of this idea for having kind of a virtual HQ for your team. One is called branch.gg. I signed up for that one, but they haven't let me in yet. Another is called www.gather.town. And it's kind of the same idea. Rather than kind of just sitting at your desk all day and looking at Slack, they have these virtual, like almost like game-like 
areas where you have a little character and this top-down view like you're playing Zelda or something, and you move around this little virtual office that they've created, and you can see all your coworkers. And I think the whole idea behind it is that you don't really have to like ping somebody for a call. Like you don't have to like schedule a call and figure out when you're going to talk to them. You just kind of walk your character up to their character, and you just start talking. And based on the proximity of like your little guy on the screen, people can hear you if they're close enough to you. So I've been using this for the last week with my brother, just trying to test it out. I haven't got the rest of my team to sort of buy into it. But it's cool because it brings back a little bit more of the, uh, the serendipity factor of working in an office. So the little map that we're on is like an actual office. They've got little chairs at desks that your character can sit at when you don't really want to be disturbed. Or you can go literally stand by the water cooler in the cafeteria and people can walk up to you and just start talking. I totally get that need and it's something we hear from our prospective clients and the folks that we're working with now. Like all day, it's like, what is that? kind of Jane Jacobs style, you know, creative chaos, people bumping into each other and and starting new ideas and starting new projects and eventually even starting new companies. Like, what does that look like in a world where we're, you know, all spending 97% of our time at home? Um, It's funny, I'm like, kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm like, how can I look at the screen less? How can I be, you know, no video on calls without offending people and like, just audio only? Like, I'm really excited about like, I don't have an invite yet. Maybe I should, maybe somebody that's listening can hook me up. But like Clubhouse, I know is like blowing up as audio only because I think people like, you know, we've, we've been on Zoom for so long that now people are, are looking for, I, I think a lot about cognitive loads and like how like we have to think so much. And I think actually Zoom and other platforms, even when it's really, really well done, there's still like that kind of instinct in your brain that tells you like, oh, this actually isn't natural. Like there is a millisecond of a millisecond delay and you know, and it's, it just doesn't feel natural. So I'm like, I'm big on the, you know, the audio only, but I definitely see the value of the, the platforms that you're talking about, like Branch. Yeah, the uh, audio only thing is really good. Even Branch and Gather, like I think they have video built in, but it's not really, like you don't need it. Like I was talking to my brother on Gather this morning without, I was on my phone and I don't think they have support for video on your phone, but it felt very much like Clubhouse where it's kind of like, you can just walk around your house talking to people. And the problem with the Zoom chat is, like, even before this podcast, like, I had to clean up my living room <laughs> to make sure it doesn't look like shit and, like, make sure I'm, like, wearing a shirt and wearing pants and stuff. And it's just, like, a little bit too much friction versus these audio-only platforms kind of solve that serendipity problem where people can just kind of walk up and talk to you and there's no preparation necessary. You can just kind of talk to your coworkers and just jump right in and add a conversation without any of that extra friction. It's honestly just annoying. Like, whenever, like, you have to schedule a call, you have to go through this time of, like, this process of figuring out like what time are you free? What time am I free? What's the best time? Then it turns into this whole big thing. And then like maybe you just wanted to ask like a really simple question that could take like five seconds. But because you scheduled time for it, like the meeting ends up dragging on like longer than it really needs to, just to make it feel like it's worth it. Like it was worth setting this whole thing up. But it's just stupid. It just makes no sense. It's just obvious like uh, this is eventually gonna be better. Exactly. And I think particularly when you're talking about the act of building consensus around how people communicate and collaborate within an organization, like within a company, like that's the product that we're building. That's where I spend 95% of my working hours thinking about. Right. So you had these these two services that you created that you sold for 30 grand each, but you're trying to turn these services into uh, actual products here. So give me an example of one of the products that you're working on. Sure. Yeah. So like fundamentally, it all starts with self-awareness. So we're building like we think of as as very simply as like the Meyer-Briggs or the Enneagram for the future of work. Right. So there's this universe of different assessment tools. I mean, it's massive and companies pay 
tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars for companies to come in and as consultants run these kinds of assessments. But like nobody's ever built one specific to the needs of, of this rapidly changing future of work where we're communicating asynchronously <laughs> and we're figuring out, you know, in, in real time, like how people like to work. So taking like personality assessment, how people communicate, how people collaborate and using it to really create a completely new framework for uh, how companies and individuals think about about the way that they come together. Yeah, I like that because there's kind of a proven market there. There's a ton of companies that already pay a lot of money for these sort of employee, you know, teammate assessments. Kind of figure out your personality type, figure out how you like to work, all sorts of stuff like that. But given that the world is changing and people are now working more remotely and they're working from home and they're working like you know hybrid, some people are remote, some people are in the office, etc. It's kind of like a, a gap in the market or kind of a new opportunity to produce an even better assessment that's sort of tailored for this new way that people are working. And companies probably won't balk at paying for something like that because they already pay for stuff like that, but they want to have the latest, the greatest. They want to have something that's actually accurate with how people are working today. Exactly. I think, you know, the, the next question from there becomes like, okay, you have an individual assessment for each of the contributors at your organization. And they understand that like, you know, Meyer Briggs, for example, has like introversion versus extroversion in Enneagram. If folks are, maybe some folks are familiar with that. It has different types that explain how you like to collaborate. And well, like, it's very easy, I think, for, for those to kind of get siloed and to not be useful in terms of, of like how they relate to how you operate like as part of a team or as part of an organization. So that's the second um, element of what we're doing is like taking all of those assessments, right? And surfacing the trends that come from them. So that's like using data from the assessment, aggregating it from all of those individuals to create a report for managers to say like, okay, like these are, you know, for example, the working hours of the people in your organization and the tools that they use, but more importantly, like how your people like to communicate, how they like to solve problems and starting to figure out across a company, like what that looks like like Ray Dalio is a, a great example for folks who maybe have seen his TED talk. Um, but like Bridgewater, which is literally like the most successful hedge fund in the history of hedge funds. This is his way of making sure that the best ideas surface. And like in real time during meetings, people are evaluating ideas to, to make sure that, you know, the best ideas win. So like assessments are just a fundamental when done, right? They're like a fundamental piece of making sure that businesses you know, that they have the opportunity to be at their best. Yeah, I've seen that, that TED Talk. It's, it's pretty cool. It's called, a, I think he calls his software the dot collector. And so there's people literally sitting in this meeting and like he's like giving an idea and people in the meeting are like rating, like, is this a good idea? Like, what's my feedback for Ray? Uh, but then instead of just seeing their own individual feedback and what they thought about Ray, they kind of see an anonymized chart of what everybody else thought of that person. So they can see like, oh, I gave him a three out of 10, but like everybody else gave him a nine out of 10. Like maybe there's something wrong with me. Like, what, like why did I interpret that so differently, et cetera? And it's just like, I mean, it looked extremely distracting. <laughs> like how could you even pay attention to anybody when you're sort of constantly rating what they're saying? But I think the idea behind it was kind of cool, which is that like we can come up with quantitative ways to figure out like how we work together and what everybody's preferences are. You know, who should we pair up? You know, somebody might be extroverted, somebody might be introverted, and maybe they should work as a team. Somebody might like remote work or video calls. Somebody might like audio calls. If there's some way to kind of find that information about somebody before you work with them, then ideally it'll sort of improve your working environment. Exactly. So, you know, across an organization, right, there are going to be points where, where you want best practices and you want norms. And that's what we do next is we create a remote communications charter. And like I think about Stripe, right, where, which like you kind of sort of work for, right, as like uh, one of the most progressive, healthy 
um, cultures. And like, imagine if every single company out there was, was as progressive as Stripe and had the kind of like tools, structures, resources, common understanding for people to, to, to work at their best and to really feel like they were in the best position to, to solve any problem that came out there. And like, you know, for every Stripe, right, there's a thousand companies that are just like, we want to see you from nine to five behind your computer. And, you know, and these are the tools that we use. And there's no opportunity to, to like from the grassroots create uh, working environments that like leverage all of the challenges of remote work to turn them into opportunities, right? That's a super important component of what we're building is, is that you have like grassroots, bottoms up, like you have a say in the way this company is is going to run. And I think like the companies that me and you and a lot of people who like hopefully have the agency to like, you know, find the best opportunities, like those are the places that they want to work. So yeah, I think it's a big opportunity. Yeah. And it's interesting to me how the variance between how good or bad some companies are at handling remote work. Like my mom works for a company and they hire recruiters and they're just like super micromanaging. Like they have software installed on everybody's computer to watch what you're doing at all times. And that also like measures how long you're there. And so like if you're away from your keyboard for 10 or 15 minutes or something, I guess like sends an alert to your boss or something that you're not working, you know? And so then like the employees buy these, I think they're called mouse jigglers, which in some cases are actual <laughs> physical devices that will just jiggle your mouse to make it look like you're, you're actually at your computer. But it's ridiculous, right? Like that's like such a micromanaging, like a very low trust way to manage a remote team. And it's like indicative of a company that just didn't really know how to handle this transition. And then there are other companies where like Stripe, for example, like many people are working remote well before the pandemic. We've got like a, a wide array of internal tools that just make it easier to get to know people and to learn about people. And we use lots of different like Slack bots. Like there's a Slack bot that's pretty popular called Donut that will just uh, sort of regularly schedule meetings for you and kind of random other people at your company. And it's a great way to kind of keep in touch and sort of mimic the in-person nature of uh, you know just bumping into people at the hallway and a real office where you're not necessarily going to go out of your way to like, you know, say, hey, random person, let's meet. But like with Donut, like, you know, you've got this third party telling you to do it. So I, I like the idea Like there's just all these different opportunities for people to get better at working remotely. And there's a ton of tools that indie hackers can basically build to do this that don't exist yet. And it, it kind of requires an imagination. Like you have to kind of imagine a future that's different where people work differently than they do today. But if you can't imagine that, you can just sort of break it down to first principles and, and say, you know, like what should people be doing? Not what are they doing right now, but like what should work look like when people aren't necessarily in the same office together. I think there's just a ton of ideas for things you can build that people actually pay money for. Totally. And I think, I mean, the, the most fascinating part to me is that it's never been easier to build those ideas to like very quickly get a grasp of what the market needs and then turn around with a solution that like might not be perfect, but pretty adequately fits the needs and meets the needs of, of consumers or of businesses. Like, you know, the last part of this Team Journeys product that we're building for companies that have gone remote is like a Slack bot, for example, right? So you've taken this assessment, it shows you, you know, the type of, of remote worker that you are, how you like to communicate, the best way to reach you, the best way that you solve problems. And, and we're building a Slack bot that will surface those findings for any individual at your company at the touch of a button, right? So you can pull up, maybe it's, you know, Cortland works in engineering, I'm in marketing, I need to figure out something about, you know, how our email delivery works. And like, I can find out exactly how Cortland is at his best in a remote environment so that 
you know, I can reach him in the, in the most effective way possible, just literally just by pulling up his his remote style on the Slack bot that we're building. And it's like, that wouldn't have been possible. Very cool. You know, you're a computer scientist, right? By training, at least. Like, I'm like the opposite of computer scientist. But, you know, with these no-code tools, and like, I learned from, you know, MakerPad, like Ben Tossel, Tom Osman, these guys at MakerPad that are just creating like incredible resources to teach people like me who aren't very technologically product minded to create tools using no code, but like, you know, that Slack bot, right? It's like flow XO is the tool that we're building that in the database is Airtable, right? And Zapier's porting that the individual profile to Webflow so that each contributor has their remote style right on a, what seemingly is like a very robust custom website for each of these clients. And like, okay, actually, you know, this stuff is very, very buildable within the core over the course of, you know, two weeks. And it's a prototype, right? And like when we hit it big, God willing, like, you know, we'll have to write custom JavaScript. But right now it's like this yep. gets us there and it's doing it, you know, quickly, efficiently, and, and we don't have to hire developers to do it. What do you think about the, the sizes of different companies that can take advantage of these tools? Because when I use some of the kind of video game type ones I was talking about earlier, where you're kind of walking around this virtual world and talking to people, like I noticed that it's like pretty helpful even for a small team. Like the little virtual office I have and gather is huge. <laughs> it could easily support like hundreds of people, but like just with me and my brother, I found it interesting to be able to serendipitously just like strike up, a, like walk over to where he is and strike up a conversation. Do you think small indie hacker type companies, you know, five to ten people are going to be buying tools like this? Do you think it's uh, mostly for bigger companies? Where do you see the opportunity when you're trying to develop these tools that you're coming up with and, and sell them to customers? Sure. I hope gather doesn't charge you by the square foot, right? Or maybe you're just like balling out and you're gonna get like a corner office, you know, penthouse with like with panoramic views of the San Francisco Bay. <laughs> I think like when you work with three or four people, you know them so intimately well at companies that are run by people who think about uh, how to make their employees happy and like how to take their feelings and, and how they work into account. Like three to four or five people like probably don't need robust tools like what we're talking about, but like Imagine you're at 14 people and three of those people were hired during COVID and you've never met them face to face and like you haven't had the opportunity to understand like how they work, you know, at their best, how they collaborate, their personality traits and how that plays into work, you know, for a 15 person company, right? I think our yeah. sweet spot and we're, you know, we're validating this like in true kind of indie hackers fashion, we're figuring like we're doing our best to talk to customers and figure out like who the customer persona is that, that we want to start with, like. You know, we had all of this success early selling into these massive Fortune 50 companies. And now we're figuring out, like, actually, like, they have a lot of, it's easy to sell maybe 30 or even, like, 50K deals in, into these companies. But, like, if you want to sell two or $300,000 deals in those companies, like, you have to go through incredibly rigorous, like, approval processes. And there's so many different stakeholders. And, like, I'll be totally honest, like, I'm very new to sales, like enterprise sales. And like, I'm realizing like, I like parts of it, but the idea of like wrangling, you know, 17 different people from, you know, <laughs> from Microsoft into a, a virtual room and like making sure that all of them feel good about the solution that you're selling, that it's like enterprises and all that to say, like, that's a very, very complicated process. Hopefully we'll get there. But um, I think in the meantime, like when I think about our perfect team size, it's like 25 to 200 people you know, they haven't done a million of these assessments. Like they still have the core issues around collaboration and communication right. that I mentioned, but like they don't have these like incredibly arduous processes that you need to jump through to, to try new things. And they, they want to be progressive and they want to figure this stuff out, but they're not exactly like, you know, wedded to what they've done before. So yeah, I think like a small to medium teams and then hopefully 
you know, that'll extend itself to, to larger teams once like we're a bit further along with, with these products that we're building. And what's cool is people are willing to try new stuff right now. Like as an indie hacker, when you have some like brand new experimental thing that, you know, you code with like one person or it's like a no code tool, you can't really go sell that to like an established company most of the time. You've got to sell them, sell the kind of stuff to people who are visionary early adopters. But right now, the entire way that everybody is working is completely changed. So we're in this like weird phase of humanity where like everybody is an early adopter. Everybody's willing to try new stuff. Absolutely. I think the advantage that we have there is, I mean, companies are running around like chickens with their heads cut off trying to catch up the basic fact that they're no longer working in their office. So, you know, whether that's for us at Unsettled or whether that's for anybody listening to this podcast that's thinking about a new kind of interest area of like starting to explore where there might be business opportunities, like it's been decades of acceleration over the course of the last nine months. And, and that presents so many interesting opportunities to start businesses. Whereas like before these companies probably, you know, they would have been like very, very close to these kinds of new ideas. Suddenly they have to find solutions. And, and you know, that means that there's opportunities to try new things and create new things more even more than try new things. Yeah. Even when I was selling podcast ads for indie hackers, I, I realized that a lot of companies were just very experimental. Like they knew podcasting was this big thing that was happening, but they didn't really have any proof that it would work for them. But they were just like, screw it. We've got a marketing budget. Like we'll spend some of it just to try advertising on your podcast. Like here's five or 10K. And it was shocking to me like how easy some of those sales were where marketing departments were just willing to spend. And then I think for smaller companies, a lot of smaller companies, like they don't have that kind of budget to experiment. But what they do want is they want to be big. <laughs> they want to kind of emulate like what the more successful companies are doing. So if I was sitting around trying to brainstorm, like what I would do is talk to some people at Airbnb talk to people at Stripe, talk to people like these bigger companies that others kind of want to be like and figure out like what tools are they doing? What kind of internal tools are they making? You know, how do they handle all these different problems with remote work? And then like maybe put together like a package of, of apps or like maybe just one app and be like, you know, you want to be like Stripe? Here you go. Uh, this is how they, you know, manage their remote employees. You can do the same thing. And what small company doesn't want to be like these big companies they admire? A hundred percent. I think companies where they need to solve problems, they want to spend money. So this is a time to figure out like where that is in the context of this acceleration of the future of work. And like, you know, one thing, maybe just an idea that somebody like take this and run with it and hopefully it makes you a million dollars. You know, like this idea that every company, I think, or 97 percent of companies aren't going to be fully remote they're not going to be fully work from the office. They're going to be some kind of hybrid beyond that. Um, that's something that we hear from every partner, you know, that we're talking to now, like there's going to be some kind of middle ground and like, what does scheduling look like, you know, in, in that middle ground? Like what are the tools that tell you what's, what is the tool that tells you when somebody's going to be in the office and when somebody's going to be out of the office? Like, even if that's just a, a plugin for, I don't know, Google calendar or something or a Slack bot or whatever it is, like, that one little tool there is going to be so valuable to so many people that, uh, or it could be so valuable to so many people or some variation of that idea. All that to say, like, if that costs $1 per user per month, then like you could sell a million of those. There are so many fundamental things changing that, you know, it means there's opportunities to just try new things. So what is your, your craziest prediction for like the future of work five, five, 10 years from now? You know, maybe it's not 100% guaranteed to happen, but like what could happen uh, to change how people are working and that would be almost unrecognizable to us today? The fundamental biggest shift that I am hopeful for as someone who is both, spends a lot of my time working, probably too much of my time working right now, is the complete disassociation of 
time from output. A friend of mine, his name is Paul Millard, super progressive forward thinker, and he focuses pretty much exclusively on this idea of the future of work. And he asked, like, what are the massively radical questions that aren't being asked? And I think, like, one of the interesting things there is what is the value of the output that you're creating, right? Like, maybe three days a week is is actually better than five days a week. Like, people talk about four days a week, right? But, like, what if it's putting in a concerted 15 hours per week on the, the most important tasks you have ahead of you and being in a position to, to leverage those to really, really drive hard um, on the things that, that need to get done? Another person that I look to for kind of interesting forward-thinking ideas is, is a woman named Rahaf uh, Farhu. She's a digital anthropologist, and she studies how burnout affects creativity, particularly with the lens of, like, we're looking at all this stuff, you know, with this idea that, like, how we've measured productivity over since the Industrial Revolution has no bearing whatsoever on how work should be done today. If, if you're working in anything that, re- that, that brings creativity to the forefront, because, essentially like the most important things that you're doing have now been disinterred from time. You could have a breakthrough in 10 minutes that's much, much, much more valuable than the 100 hours you put into things that don't matter at all. So I think like that idea that that time is now our most like valuable resource, it's like how can we make the most of it and how can we create the most value in that amount of time? Um, and also tools catch up to that, right? Like I use Grain, for example. Grain is like a perfect example. Or Val is another one of these tools where it, it takes your Zoom recordings, uses, I guess, AI somehow, machine learning to create transcriptions that are like pretty good. You know, they're not as, as good as if you hired somebody for a hundred bucks an hour, but like they're pretty damn good. And then you can make a clip from those videos to share with, you know, colleagues or, or whatever you need to do. And like, I used to take copious notes during meetings and after meetings and have to like, you know, refine them and all these things. And now that saves like four or five hours easily for my work. So, you know, I can focus on the things that are most important to me. And that's just like one tiny example. But as we introduce more and more of those tools and also just more human centric design and thought to how we work, then, you know, it'll just completely free up so much time. And like, you know, Chris heard from First Base, like you see him on Twitter, First Base is the, they call it like the operating system for remote work. They set your company up with all of the different technological tools that an employee would need, right? Like you get a laptop and you get a desk and whatever it else else your company wants to set up. And then when you're done working for that company, First Base takes it back, right? And facilitates that whole process of procurement and, and everything. Like, Yeah, it's smart. They're shipping like desks and computer chairs and like monitors to your employees so they can set up pretty good home office, which is amazing because now everybody's working remote, like they need this stuff. Yeah, I mean, talk about an incredible business for the time. Uh, and he's been working on that, I think, for like two or three years now, and like has just, you know, I'd imagine hit the absolute jackpot right now. But like the one thing, you know, I mentioned him because one, because I think it's a great business, but two, like he just hammers home this idea that, you know, we're spending hour, an hour and a half each way on a commute. And like when people have that time back, I think that's going to be an incredibly valuable, they'll be able to spend it on the things that they love doing. So like top line, the work you do should not be associated with time. And like, I don't think it should be a five day work week. You know, I don't think it even should be a four day work week. Like I want to work to live rather than the other way around. And I hope I'm working like two and a half days per week in five years or 10 years. Yeah. I mean, ideally you do the work that you need to do and who cares how long that takes. There's nobody standing over your shoulder trying to make sure you work, you know, 40 or 50 hour work weeks. There's no like sort of untrusting relationship between you and your employer where they're, you know, making you have to install a mouse jiggler just to sort of fake like you're at your computer. No, it's just like you who controls everything. And I think, you know, my vision for the future is that there are 
a lot more indie hackers because I think being an indie hacker is all about having that freedom. It's all about understanding that as long as you can get directly to the end customer and do something for them, then you control everything about your life. And if you want to work longer hours and make more money, you can do that. And if you want to work fewer hours and you know make a little bit less money and you know do what you want, like you can do that as well. And there is no like weird contractual agreement between you and your customers about how long you're going to work for them. Totally. And I, I'm informed here by literally the wealthiest man in the world telling me that time is the most important resource. So like I very haphazardly and, and kind of serendipitously got to ask Bill Gates via Twitter. This was back in 2013. Like all of the massive resources at your disposal, where do you feel least able to affect change? His answer, right? Like, so this is literally the man at the time with the most money before Jeff Bezos probably surpassed him. Uh, he said, no matter how much money you have, you can't buy time only 24 hours in each every person's day. So I set clear priorities, like my family, my work, pretty hardcore about sticking to them. So, you know, I literally, I have that lesson. And I keep, like every six months or so, I remember, you know, that like literally the person with the most money in the world told me that. And I'm like, how can I adjust my life to be more in true with this idea that like time is the one thing that we can't make more of. And like, you know, to me is the headline of this future of work. And like, if it involves artificial intelligence. Hopefully it also involves like, you know, universal basic income and where people have, you know, the opportunity to like work on the things that they really, really care about. Cause as you know, the human race, like those are the things that people should be working on, like the things that are most important to them and where they feel like they can have the most value. Love it. I think one of the coolest things here is that we're probably the first time in history, like just as an individual or as a very small team of people, I mean, you're using like no code tools <laughs> to build a lot of the stuff that you're talking about and you're doing it like in a matter of days or weeks. Like you can, attach yourself to one of these giant movements in human history, like the, the future of work, the fact that people are feeling more empowered from their jobs, that they're working fewer hours, they're working more on their own terms, they're uh, working in more enjoyable environments. And you can actually start a mission-driven company, a company where like, you're actually changing the world in ways that you want to see it changed, and you can feel proud about what you're doing. You're not just doing something that's opportunistic to make money. And it can also simultaneously make you a lot of money, give you your own financial independence, and allow you to live the life you want to live. I think it's such a cool opportunity, and I hope more indie hackers uh, build in this space and, and do things that are real meaningful for other people so they can be proud of it and they can help themselves and help others. I'm totally on board. I just think, like, you know, as someone who's listened to indie hackers for a long time and does not have that technical background, like, this is an opportunity for anybody to come to it with an idea and just literally start from square one and be able to get somewhere so fast that like you'll have the validation you need to whatever you want to do, get more customers, raise outside capital, just kind of keep pushing on the things that, that you found out. Dan Pearson, thanks a ton for coming on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at Unsettled and anything else you've got going on? Absolutely. So www.beunsettled.co is where you can find us. If you're working at a company and you find that you're having you know, these issues around communication and collaboration, like you feel like you don't know how to approach people to solve problems in a virtual setting, like we'd love to chat with you about that. Personally, at Dan Pearson on Twitter, Instagram, all that fun stuff, trying to always write more on Medium as well. That's, that's at Dan Pearson too. And yeah, look forward to, to hearing from some of the folks who enjoy the podcast. All right. Thanks again, Dan. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening and as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>